Uh, so glad you came. Uh, if you've been with us before this semester, you know we're going through a series called Simply Jesus. And what we're doing is we're basically looking at, uh, really from Genesis, we started Genesis 3.15, and we're making our way to Revelation this semester, really just talking about how all of the Bible points to Jesus. The Bible is actually about Jesus. And so, I'm just going to have to, okay, does this adjust at all? Oh, my man, thank you. There we go. All right, cool. Um, so tonight, so last week, or first week, we looked at Genesis 3.15, the first promise that Jesus is going to crush the head of the serpent. Uh, last week, we looked at uh, Jesus as the true matter of Moses, who leads us out of spiritual uh, slavery. Tonight, we're looking at David and Goliath. This is a fun one to do, because if you're like me, you grew up in the church, you, you maybe heard that story all your life, but, but I, I'm hoping tonight you've never heard it like this. Um, but before we get started, I was thinking about uh, why we're doing this series And I was thinking about this story, probably the funniest thing that happened to me uh, all of, really in the last five or ten years. So last spring, uh, the staff and I had, uh, were taking a little, we like to do these staff hangout days, and we try to go somewhere fun sometimes. So we had gone down to Charleston for a beach day. And on our way, we needed a little coffee, so we uh, stopped in this coffee shop. And as we're walking in, I see one of my favorite celebrities of all time, Bill Murray. Now, if you don't know Bill Murray, he's a famous comedian, famous actor, been in a lot of good things. I can't do it justice in like this moment. But he's huge. He's a huge, huge celebrity. So I had known about Bill Murray. He lives in Charleston, and that he typically loves to do these photo ops with people. So I'm thinking, this is incredible. Staff hangout day. I think it was actually one of our Scott Beyond's last staff hangout day. We're going to get a picture with Bill Murray. It's going to be amazing. So I like kind of make my way in the coffee shop. And this is where I just don't play it cool at all. I like immediately, by the way, I'm wearing a beach, a beach hat. Like one of those, uh, I don't know what you call it, like, you know, the wide. It just didn't look cool. And then, like, you know, bathing suit. I don't look great, let me be honest. So I just go up to him and say, Bill Murray, I'm a huge fan. Would you mind taking a picture with us? And that's when I get the dress down. He's like, no. He's like, number one, you didn't introduce yourself. And number two, you're wearing a hat inside. And I just sort of, like, look down. This is true. And then, you know, when is it? And then I like just kind of sheepishly took my hat off. <laughs> and then I ordered my coffee and that was it. Why do I tell that story? It wasn't what I expected them to be. Meeting Bill Murray was not as amazing. It's actually a better story because I, you know, I don't have a picture, but I've got this like terrible exchange with Bill Murray. Um, why do I say that? Because what we're, the story we're looking at tonight, God, is, God does something completely unexpected. Part of what we're doing in this series is maybe what I'm hoping for you, whether you consider yourself a Christian or whether you're really exploring this whole thing called Christianity, this whole, the whole point of this series is really to try to convince you that Jesus might just be different than you expected. And the good news of that is it's always in better ways. But what I love about this passage tonight is we're going to see that. We're going to get to Jesus. But God is doing something unexpected. We're looking at David and Goliath, 1 Samuel 17. Um, I'm not going to read all of it, so I'm just going to read selected portions. It's in your handout. Let's read what God's word says. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And uh, And he had the bronze armor, and he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. And he stood, and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. 
If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and, uh, and serve us. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Skip down to verse 20. And David rose early. So basically David's dad sends him to take lunch to his brothers in the battlefield. So David rose early in the morning and he left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions, the lunch, and went as Jesse had commanded him, his dad. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. Verse 23, as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. Verse 32, and David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you were youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. And when there came, uh, from his youth, 34, but David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Verse 38, Then Saul clothed them with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed them with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. And then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. And then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath, and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sherim as far as Gath and Ekron. That's a long passage. Let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into it. 
Our Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this story. Would you show us ourselves, and would you show us what you're like? And would you show us your son, Jesus? We pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. So God here does something completely unexpected. And what I want to do is look at really three things, always three things. I want to look at, from this passage, our greatest threat. I want to look at our greatest need. And then lastly, I want to look at our greatest hero. So first, our greatest threat. Second, our greatest need. And then lastly, our greatest hero. So first, our greatest threat. So what's obvious in this whole passage is Goliath, right? Maybe you've grew up, grown up in the church. You heard a lot about Goliath growing up. You saw pictures. Here's, I want to do two things. One, what's obvious about Goliath. And then two, what's not so obvious. So first, let's talk about what's obvious about Goliath. So the tallest man ever recorded in history died in 1940. His name was Robert Wadlow. Uh, and he stood at 8'11". And all you really need to know is Goliath was a little bit taller than that. He was huge. He was actually descended from... Uh, what scripture calls the tall men or the giants that used to roam the earth. Uh, Goliath is their descendant. And the obvious thing is he's perhaps the greatest fighter maybe in the world. I don't know if you're a Game of Thrones person, but he would be something like the mountain, but even bigger and a better warrior, a better fighter. So he's huge, and he is just, when you read his speeches, he is completely savage in the way that he just defies God and defies God's people. I mean, he is just completely a warrior and so, so intimidating. It's pretty obvious when you read the passage, but here's what's not so obvious. It's a little more interesting about why the people of God feared him so much. Because what's not so obvious is that if we were to go back to Numbers 13, there's a history here with Goliath and God's people. If we were to go back to Numbers 13, what we would find is, remember when Moses sends the spies and says, go check out the land of Canaan? Do you remember this story? Numbers 13 is where it is. And they, they go and they, they come back terrified. They're like, we can't do this. And Moses is like, why? And they say, because there are these giants there that we're never going to defeat. And so they come back in fear. What's fascinating is if we were to fast forward a little bit to Joshua when he finally takes courage and follows the Lord into the battle and he drives out the Anakim. What's fascinating is they relocated to this place called Gath, which is actually the passage says where Goliath is from. So Goliath is not just intimidating in size and, and what he does, but he's intimidating because there's a story about God's people, a story of fear. What this passage is trying to say is that they're, it's like they're back in the wilderness and they are terrified of their enemies all over again. Goliath is a threat. Here's what you see. He's a threat not so much because of his size, not so much because of his ability on the battlefield. He's a threat because he is the overwhelming thing. This is what I want you to get. He is the overwhelming thing in the lives of God's people that both mocks the glory of God and keeps them living in fear instead of faith. This is what you have to get. Goliath represents, the, he is, the overwhelming thing in the lives of God's people that overwhelms them so much it keeps them cowering in fear instead of living and moving in faith. Um, so the greatest threat wasn't Goliath. The greatest threat was their fear of Goliath and their lack of faith that God could do something about it. Here's where this came home to me. I recently went when my boss, JR, yeah, he was in town. He's doing our fall conference. You should come. He's a great dude. When he was in town, typically, neither of us are big talkers. I mentioned a few weeks ago, I'm a huge introvert. He's kind of right on the spectrum, the spectrum with me, the introvert spectrum. And so we like, I like to get, take him to a movie because I'm not trying to like make, I know how painful it is when people or trying to make small talk with me, and so I'm like not trying to do that with him. So we go to a movie. So we went to see Stephen King's It. I don't know if you're a horror person or not. I'm not. It was fascinating. Let me sell you an It for a second. Like it was not your normal dumb horror movie. It was like very thoughtful. 
And the thing that I thought was so thoughtful, if you've seen it or not, doesn't matter. Pennywise is this clown, and basically his line in the movie is that he he's, he shows up in this town and he begins eating these children. He like steals them and eats them, basically. And so he's got this great line where he says, I feed on the flesh of the children by feeding first most on their fears. And what he says is basically in the movie, watch the movie, he actually can transform. He's not, he's a clown typically, which is scary enough. Like clowns already are kind of freaky. And then when you see Pennywise, it's really scary. But he's able to morph, and he often morphs into whatever the child's greatest fear is. So if you've seen the movie, you know he builds the lead character. His greatest fear is the loss of his brother, Georgie, who Pennywise stole. And so Pennywise will transform into Georgie and then come after Bill. Or Beverly is the lead girl in the, in the movie. Her greatest fear is her abusive dad. So Pennywise will morph into her dad and then lure her away. It's really it's terrifying in a lot of levels. Um, but what I want you to see is this is the situation of God's people. Goliath represents the very thing that they're afraid of, that they are fearful about. And the same is true for you and me. Because here's the first question. What is the overwhelming thing in your life right now that is mocking the glory of God and is keeping you living in fear instead of in faith? Uh, the way that I had a pastor ask me one time is a little bit of a different angle But he said, if you were Satan and you were trying to have a game plan of temptation and struggle with yourself, what would your what would your strategy be? Like if you were Satan, how would you approach you? It's a weird question. It's what I don't. That's like why I'm I'm not going to recall. I'm a little intimidated to ask that question because it just feels like a like a table clearer. But it's a great question. Another way of asking it is, what are you so afraid of? What is the thing in your life right now that you're so afraid of? That it both robs God from honor and glory because it leads you to places that you wish you had never gone. Let me come in this this two ways. Let me try to bring this home in two ways. Here's one. For some of you, you're so afraid of being rejected, of not being liked and accepted, that it leads you to places that when you were in high school, you you never saw yourself going in college. It leads you to situations It leads you to relationships. It leads you to certain choices with what you do with yourself that you would never have done except you're driven by the fear of rejection. This was Saturday. So Saturday, I took Daniel to his first Carolina football game. And there was a little bit of backstory where I went to Carolina, but I grew up a huge Clemson fan. So when I was here as a student, I cheered for Clemson most of the time. So I was like, okay, I'm taking Daniel to the game. I want to show him a good time. So we're in this... uh, men's shop in Maine, Granger Owings, and I see this Carolina shirt, and I'm like, I'm going to get that. Like, I'm going to really, in Daniel's words, ball out for this game. So I buy this shirt, and then I'm, like, so excited, because my wife's a huge Carolina fan. Her dad coached here, women's tennis for almost 30 years. And so I'm, like, so excited. I'm texting my wife. I got my first, you're be so proud of me. I got my first Carolina shirt. I get it home. I show her. She's like, that's awesome. Then I show some friends that came over later that night, and they were like, that's awesome, but you realize it's a blackout on Saturday. Shoot. I'm like, you know what? I'm embracing it. But the whole time I'm there, like, I'm super self-conscious, right? Because the way fear of rejection works in my life is I hate standing out, and I hate feeling dumb and looking dumb. But when I'm at the game, too, I'm realizing, like, that's everybody there. Like, that's why we, sometimes that's why the, the reason that you drink the way that you drink. is because you're so terrified of being rejected. It's why you wear what you wear. You're so terrified of being rejected, and I'm right there with you. I was thinking about it like this when I was in college with the drinking thing. 
When I was in college, the big song at parties, I don't know if it's a thing anymore, was Hank Williams, Jr., Hank Williams Jr. Family Tradition. And so you'd be at a party, and the way it would go was, you know, the line would go, Hank, why do you drink? And the crowd would, would, shout, would shout, to get drunk. Why do you roll smoke? To get high. And like, everybody's like, yeah. It's my dream now. I don't know if this is still a thing. But if it is, it's my dream to be in that crowd. And when they say, Hank, why do you drink? I want to just go, to be loved and accepted because I'm really, really afraid of rejection. Why do you roll smoke? To escape the overwhelming problems in my life that I have no idea how to face. And I'm so terrified that I'm not enough. Like, wouldn't that be fun? That would just be so fun. Maybe that's my 37-year-old self. Um, but that we, do, we do things because we're so terrified of not being liked or loved. Let's try, let's try a different way because that's not, that might be some of this room. That's not all this room. For others of you, your fear, the overwhelming fear, is you're so afraid of messing up or of making a mistake that you live in the death grip of perfectionism which is its own kind of living hell. You are so afraid to do something wrong because here's why. Because you secretly think for anyone to love you, much less the Lord, you have to be something. You have to be perfect. You have to have it all together or at least appear perfect. And perfectionism is killing you. It's robbing you of joy. It's robbing you of friendship. It's robbing you of life. One of my favorite authors, Anne Lamott, says it like this. She's hilarious. And she says, perfectionism is the voice of the oppressor, the enemy of the people. It will keep you cramped and insane your whole life. I think perfectionism is based, I love this line, in the obsessive belief that if you run carefully enough, hitting each stepping stone just right, you won't have to die. The truth is that you will die anyway. And that a lot of people who aren't even looking at their feet are going to do a whole lot better than you and have a whole lot more fun while they're doing it. These are just two ways. Here's what I'm trying to say. And Goliath lives in. The fear that mocks us from, from living to the glory of God, moving out into the world in faith, lives on. That's our greatest threat. The, these fears that do that for us. But then second, let's talk about our greatest need. So Goliath was doing this thing to God's people for 40 days, the text says, until... This little shepherd boy, David, literally he's the lunch delivery boy. That's what I love about this passage. David's just bringing lunch to his brothers. He's there, and he hear, And as soon as he gets there in God's providence, Goliath comes out and starts mocking and defying God's people. And I love the way the text says, and David heard, and that changed everything. Because David wasn't, David wasn't going to take it. He wasn't going to let Goliath mock the glory of God. He, God. he was defaming God's honor and David wasn't going to stand for it. And so as he's been sent by his dad and he hears it, he decides he's going to do something about it. He decides that he's going to face the fears of God's people in faith that God loves them and is going to fight for them. And he says, God is going to win this battle. So David moves out toward Goliath in faith. But what David, what David is doing is, is he really, he's really highlighting our greatest need, which is to face Goliath. To face our fears, to face the giants, you'll give me that line, in our lives that are robbing us of life and, of, of, and robbing God of glory. To put it in the words of Stephen King, back to Ed, he's got this great line in the book where he says, Home is the place where when you go there, you have to finally face the thing in the dark. We have to fight Goliath and fight these fears. And this is where, probably if you're like me, almost every sermon you've ever heard of David and Goliath kind of ends. 
You have Goliaths in your life? Be like David. Be courageous. Be faithful. Expect God to do the impossible. End of story. And can I humbly say to you, that's not what this text is saying at all. The hero of this text isn't David. The, the, the moral of this text isn't go be like David. Let me unpack this for you for a little bit. Uh, here's how it's typically explained. Let me go there first. So maybe you've seen a little movie called Facing the Giants. I'm a huge, if you don't know anything about me, I really hate Christian movies for a lot of reasons. And we could talk about them. I, I know that sounds weird. But usually because they're really, really poorly done. And they don't represent like a biblical Christianity typically. Like they're not about, you don't leave Facing the Giants being like, Jesus loves me so much and he's incredible. You leave thinking, I need to go be like David. To prove that to you, I wanted to read just the little synopsis of how the film ends. I've actually only seen parts of it, and uh, so I thought the way that IMDb describes the end of the movie really was fascinating, so I'm just going to read it for us. Just a little synopsis. This is how Facing the Giants, if you haven't seen it, ends. It's a football coach. It's about faith. Here's how it ends. They're at the championship course after some, like, not serious struggle. That's not fair. All right, here we go. With a scant... Here's the scene. With a scant two seconds left to play, Grant, the coach, issues his final order. David Childers must kick a fifty-one. <laughs> this is gonna be hard to do. Must kick a fifty-one yard field goal. David doubts he can do this, but Grant tells him once again to lay aside his fears. The sports announcers can't understand it, especially since the wind is against David. But Coach Duke makes a mistake. He calls a timeout. <laughs> he, call- <laughs> he calls a timeout when he doesn't have to. And then, at the last second, he misses the field goal. Of course not. <laughs> the wind shifts, and when David sees, <laughs> and when David sees his father standing up in his wheelchair, he moves in to make the kick. I'm not sure. Someone who's seen it is going to have to explain this to me. This is actually more fun not having seen it. It is good. Final score, sorry, 24 to 23 Eagles. In the locker room, Coach Grant asks his players to dare, to dare tell him what's impossible with God, not, not field goals. <laughs> Answer, nothing, of course. He singles out David for his field goal, Zach for his quarterbacking, and Brock for his defensive leadership. That night, Brooke, his wife, breaks to Grant some more joyous news that he hasn't heard yet, that he... <laughs> That he, I'm sorry, y'all. That he just made the daddy team. <laughs> They're struggling to have, <laughs> struggling to have kids. That's not funny, but the way. That, <laughs> let me keep going. Uh, two years later, Grant Taylor, with two state championship trophies on his wall, has a year-old son who has his own model football field to play with. And Brooke, this is the way I love. And Brooke obviously has another baby on the way. That's where it is. And so this is where most sermons end. Go face your giants. Right? Go be like David. Do the impossible. Trust God with the impossible. And can I just, again, humbly say to you, and I'm sorry if that offended you. Like, if Facing the Giants is your favorite movie, I really am sorry. I mean, I'm sorry. Not for you. For this. (laughs) The problem is that's not the point of the text. The point of the text isn't be, here is what I want you to see. The point of the text isn't be like David. The point of the text is God sent a David. That God sent a David through whom he was going to win the battle for his people. 
And so the message of this, of this text isn't going to be like, David, is God, God has sent a true and better David. Let me tell you why this is so important. That David and Goliath, here's another way to say it, isn't a story about what you should do in faith for God. This is really important. If you've never heard this before, please listen to me. This is not a story, and the Bible is not a book about what you should do in faith for God. It is about what God has done in his faithfulness for you because of his love for you, that God does for you what you cannot ever hope to do for yourself, much less what God's people here could ever hope to do with themselves. So the problem when we preach David and Goliath and say, go be like David, is we're basically leaving people in what I could just call or we could call try harder, do better Christianity. And can I say to you, that's not real Christianity. Real Christianity says Jesus has done everything that I need, not, but not me. And we could talk about when you follow him and when you know him, what that means. But, but if we don't preach this rightly, then we leave people and try harder, do better Christianity. Let me try to illustrate a little more why this is a huge deal. So when I came to USC, I was what you call a, a YGH, a youth group hero. I made that up. It's not a thing. I don't think it's going to catch on. But I was like the youth group kid. Like in high school, I got converted right before my freshman year pretty radically. And I immediately like devoured my student Bible and like made sure everyone saw it. You know what I mean? I I was very super involved in my youth group. Like I was the guy that just wanted to be the youth group leader. And I was. The problem was my senior year, I got into a relationship that was just not good. And we went places that we never thought we would go. And there was a lot of shame there. There was a lot of... um, just shame is the right word, shame and guilt. And by the end of my senior year, I was kind of living this double life where I was like youth group hero by day and then like kind of sad boyfriend, ashamed boyfriend by night. So when I got to college as a freshman here, I was pretty depressed to be honest with you because this was a tension for me. Like I didn't know, I wanted to present myself as this youth group hero, but at the same time, I was really, really, really struggling. And so this one night, I'm at the hottest, this is my freshman year here, I'm at the hottest campus ministry in town. We're like doing the thing. And somewhere in between singing, all I remember about this night is we must have sang the chorus of Open the Eyes of My Heart, Lord, like felt like a million times. And I, like, I was like, my heart is dying. Lord, I don't want you to open my heart. I need you to like revive it, you know, which I guess is what the song's about. That's on me. The other part was there was a skit. I was going to say talk, but it was really more of a skit that the ministry was doing when skits were still a thing. Maybe they still are. And it was about the joy of the Lord is our strength. And can I tell you how I heard that? Like, I was a genuine Christian. Like, I, I really, I knew Jesus. But I had never really heard the gospel before. And so when they were talking about the joy of the Lord is our strength, what I heard was, my strength is in being joyful before the Lord. And I am not doing that right now. And so I heard, and this is on me some, I heard a message like the way that we just did David and Goliath. How do you tell a struggling, failing person, go be like David? That's not good news. And so I left that night. I'm sure I went and got a spicy chicken number six because that's my depressed jam. Curled up in bed and just didn't want to wake up again. And it wasn't until later that the irony of this whole thing is it took me a long time to finally hear the joy of the Lord is my strength is saying something completely different than I heard. It's saying that, that David's strength in this passage doesn't come from within himself. 
It comes from the sure knowledge that God is so for him and so delights in him and takes such joy in saving his people that God is going to do something about it. That God's joy over you as a broken sinner is the strength in which you move out into the world. It's not within yourself. It's the joy of the gospel. This, and that's good news. And so let's bring it home. Thirdly, the hero we need. Let me keep going. So David, the point is, is not the hero of the text. He's merely, the irony of this thing, there's humor all throughout the Bible. There's a lot of humor in 1 Samuel that he is merely this lunch delivery boy that God uses. But God is the hero of the story. God is the one who does something incredible through David. And what we see is it's just a small picture of David pointing to what his true and better son, Jesus, is going to do on behalf of God's people. That's what I got you. What's what I want you to see? David is doing something on behalf of God's people as their representative. And that's what this text is about. That God is going to do something and send someone that is even better than David to fight our even greater enemies than Goliath. Sin and Satan and death and judgment. And so the temptation we have to resist when we read the Bible is it's not about you. It's about Jesus. The Old Testament is the promise of Jesus. The Gospels are the presence of Jesus with his people. Acts is about the, Jesus preached for the first time to the people. The New Testament epistles are Jesus explained and unpacked. And then Revelation is all about the return and the promised return of Jesus. The Bible is not about you. It's about Jesus. And so how does this text point us to Jesus? Just a few ways. Number one, there's nothing impressive about the appearance of David. First Samuel 16, if we were to go back, labors to make that point. When Samuel went to find the next king, he was like, tall guy. Nope. Next tall guy. Nope. God was like, this guy. And then so Samuel, even Samuel was like, what? This guy? And then Isaiah 53 says this about Jesus. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Like David, Jesus hears the taunt of God's enemy and he can't bear the way it dishonors God and he can't bear the way it imprisons God's people. So he has to do something about it. Like David, Jesus lays aside his armor. And he makes himself vulnerable, even so vulnerable in his weakness that he goes naked to a cross, which is the ultimate battlefield. Like David, he trusts that the Father is going to deliver him. He trusts that the Father is going to win the battle. 1 Samuel 17, if you're with us, is a fulfillment in a beautiful way of Genesis 3.15, where we talked about the first promise of Jesus that said he was going to crush the head of the serpent. What's fascinating here, one commentator brings out, that Goliath, his armor was like scaled. And then if you had seen him from afar, he looked like a snake. And what does David do? Crushes his head and then literally cuts it off. Which is a small picture of the way Jesus has crushed the serpent. Close with this. One of my favorite uh, movies over the years is uh, Cinderella Man. True story of Jimmy Braddock fighting. This is sort of set in the, in the Great Depression. He's fighting this huge fighter named Max Bear, who literally in the ring, just a true story, in the ring he killed a man just with a, like, with a hook or some, some punching move. You can tell him not, not into boxing. Kills the guy. And Jimmy Braddock's up-and-coming fighter, he's going to fight Max Bear. And everyone's like, what in the world are you thinking? Like, Jimmy, you're not even that great of a fighter. Like, you're way smaller than him. How is this going to work? And there's this line that I love in the movie where he's at a press conference and they ask him that question, Jimmy, what are you, why are you doing this? What are you fighting for? And he has a weird response. He just says, I'm fighting for milk. And what he meant was, I'm fighting because I am sick and tired. There are scenes in the movie where his children are going without food. 
they're going without like basic food like milk and bread. And he says, I'm fighting because I'm sick and tired of watching my children cower in fear. If you or I could have had a press conference with Jesus before he goes to the cross, and we say, Jesus, why are you doing this? What are you, what are you fighting for? What do you think Jesus would have said? I think he would have said something like this. He would have looked at you and me and would have said, I'm fighting for you. I'm fighting because I can't bear to see my brothers and sisters struggle in fear and live in fear. And I'm fighting and I'm fighting the ultimate sin and Satan and death and judgment that I might bring them back to my Father, that they might know my joy and that my joy over them might be their strength. If you want to find your, your place in this passage... Here it is. You're not David. Can I, let me, can I humbly say that? Some of you think you are. You're not. You're the people who rush the Philistines after David wins the victory. Can I say to you that, Christian, the victory has already been won. And you get to follow Jesus to fight the things in your life, to fight the fears, to fight the sins, to fight the places where you're it's robbing God of honor and glory. But you get to do it in the security of knowing Jesus has already won the victory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for that, uh, for the truth of that, for the truth of the gospel. I pray that you would bring it home to our hearts in beautiful and powerful ways. We pray these things in your name. Amen.